Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural show of El Nino Speaks. This is for premium subscribers of the Jose Nino Unfiltered Substack with yours truly. This is where you will hear me spout off about a number of contemporary political developments from a perspective you won't find elsewhere. I guarantee you. So if you're into cookie-cutter political takes, you're listening to the wrong podcast, quite frankly. So without further ado, let's talk about Cuba. For those who haven't been paying attention over the last month, a lot of people in the right-wing space have been obsessing over Cuba starting in early July, more or less. And They're still doing it, actually, from what I've gathered on Twitter. Anytime I go and browse several of the Hispanic conservatives I follow. Well, to give some context to why this is happening, you had the mass protests in Cuba kicking off on July 11th, 2021, if I'm not mistaken. The causes of these protests are manifold, in my opinion, Just take a look at the island's living conditions, and you can just see enough to explain why these people are rising up. It's largely the product of the totalitarian communist central planning that has marked the Cuban political economy since the Cuban Communist Party gained control of the island in the early 1960s. This came after Cuban rebels led by Fidel Castro toppled the government of Fulgencio Batista in 1959. It also doesn't help that the really brutal lockdown policies that the Cuban government has implemented in response to the Wuhan virus has added just further fuel to the fire. But there's one underrated aspect that I feel some people tend to overlook when talking about Cuba's current plight. It's the U.S. government's embargo on Cuba, which was imposed on Cuba starting in the early 1960s after it became clear that Cuba was a Soviet satellite and Cuba started to saber rattle against the U.S. by hosting Soviet troops and even allowing for the Soviet Union to park missile installations on the island. I do agree somewhat with the left, though, that the embargo the U.S. has imposed on Cuba has been ineffective, to say the least. It's essentially become a rallying point for the regime where they can now other the U.S., if you will, and blame it for all of its problems. And you just cannot like deny that this embargo has been ineffective in affecting regime change in Cuba. The communist government is still very much in power. And I would even argue so far as that the embargo and subsequent punitive actions have actually emboldened the Castro regime and have created the unintended consequence of pushing it into the Chinese and the Russians geopolitical orbit. To me, this is just the nature of the multipolar geopolitical environment we're currently living in, where a lot of people in the American national security community simply don't comprehend to this very day. And I think this will continue to be the case because I think this is a systemic issue amongst 
this segment of the American ruling class. But that's a story for another day. I would stress, however, that I don't think the embargo is the monolithic driver of Cuba's current economic situation. In my opinion, it's still very much self-inflicted when you factor in all the stuff that's making Cuba just like a total mess and has hindered its overall economic development over the last 60 years. To me, the main culprit is the government's central planning policies and just severe disrespect towards property rights that has led to massive economic stagnation and Cuba's underdevelopment. People tend to forget this because I like to put things in perspective. Cuba actually was one of the most prosperous countries by Latin American standards prior to the Cuban Revolution. And this should not be ignored. However, many people, especially on the left, like to downplay that. And as I said before, the embargo gives the current regime an excuse to continue their absolutely economically illiterate and destructive policies. But at the same time, the embargo also just makes Cuba an easy piece to be used on a geopolitical chessboard by external actors like Russia and China. I personally think that we should get rid of this embargo and work to normalize relations with Cuba while trying to hammer out red lines as well to promote geopolitical stability in the Western Hemisphere. I am rather curious, though, and this is shifting gears a bit, about the internal politics of Cuba because it is going through a fascinating transition as we see a Castro-led government since Fidel Castro died in 2016 and his brother Raul Castro stepped down as president of Cuba in 2018. In the wake of all of those happenings, Miguel Diaz-Canel assumed the role of the presidency in 2018. And Raul Castro, Fidel's brother, stepped down from the position of first secretary of the Central Committee of the Cuban Communist Party, and then named Miguel Diaz-Canel to be the head of the Cuban Communist Party. In effect, Diaz-Canel is the principal leader of Cuba, which marks the end of total Castro rule in Cuba. Though policy-wise, I think that there won't be much change. You may see some marginal reforms when it comes to foreign investment and some very marginal reforms regarding the relaxation of privatization in certain spheres. But the Cuban Communist Party will likely remain in power for some time and the island will still be under a authoritarian system of governance. So we'll see what happens there. Though there will be obviously challenges to the regime's legitimacy now that the Castros are out of the picture and the Diaz-Canel government begins to test the waters of a post-Castro Cuba. I think the July protests will be the first in a series of disturbances that Cuba will face in the post-Castro era. So I'll have my eyes peeled on that. However, none of what's going on in Cuba 
even when the Castros were in power and into the present justifies any calls for interventionism. Unfortunately, you had a lot of folks like, say, the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, go on Fox News calling for airstrikes against Cuba. And then you had the usual assortment of representatives that demanded that the U.S. implement punitive sanctions and other interventionist measures on the island. Even more hilarious and just like flat-out farcical was the case of the congressman from West Virginia, Alex Mooney, introducing a congressional joint resolution that would grant President Joe Biden the ability to use war powers to deliver humanitarian aid to Cuba during the recent protests. And everybody knows the score that the humanitarian aid is very likely a Trojan horse for some more devious schemes to destabilize the Cuban regime. In my view, the U.S. will continue taking an interest in the island for strategic purposes because with the Pentagon's new fixation on great power competition, there is a genuine fear that as external actors such as China and Russia grow in power, they will probably be able to start projecting influences in places like Cuba as a means of poking the U.S. in the eye, which is actually kind of logical when you think about it, because in international relations, this is not a good versus evil game. It's just a game of cold, hard political realism where you have a country like the U.S. that has tons of military assets surrounding China and Russia, especially in their spheres of influence. So those two actors will respond in kind by propping up governments like Cuba or even Venezuela, for example. So yeah, there's that. And in fact, I would even go even further to suggest that there are a lot of folks in the foreign policy blob in the U.S. that probably want to annex Cuba. In fact, actually, if you look at American history from the early days of the Republic to certain parts of the antebellum period, you had like groups like the Knights of the Golden Circle and even the filibusters who made attempts to annex certain parts of Latin America and even expand into the Caribbean. So this is not exactly a novel theme. But when we fast forward to the present, you have, for example, neocon stooges like Bill Crystal tweeting on various occasions calling for Cuba to join the U.S. In fact, on April 16th, after Raul Castro tendered his resignation, Bill Crystal actually called on Cuba to become a U.S. state. He outlined this in a quote tweet where he was responding to the news of Castro's resignation. To quote Crystal, air quote, straightforward from here. Number one, Castro quits. Number two, we offer Cuba sanctions, relief, and investment contingent on political and economic liberty for the Cuban people. Number three, free and fair elections are held. Number four, a free and democratic Cuba applies for U.S. statehood. Number five, El Estado de Cuba, end quote. So essentially, Crystal is calling for Cuba to become another U.S. state, which further grows the American empire and adds more consumer units to boost the GDP. 
frankly, I'll pass on that because I personally think the U.S. is already too bloated, too big and overextended. And I ultimately believe in national sovereignty. At the end of the day, Cuba poses virtually zero threat to the U.S. There's really no sign at the moment that any of the great powers that I mentioned before are going to set up military installations on the island like the way the Soviets did. And honestly, the only way that happens is if the U.S. overextends itself when challenging Russia and China and their respective spheres of influence. And like I mentioned before, they'll probably, if the U.S. actually follows through with that kind of loony foreign policy, the Russians and the Chinese will just continue propping up countries like China and Venezuela, which already have governments that are largely anti-American and are willing to tick off the U.S. When you play geopolitical games, frankly, expect blowback to come in some form or the other. And to reiterate, just because a country has a crappy government doesn't justify making it a target of regime change. And yeah, the Cuban regime is messed up. I'll be the first to admit it. The economic numbers and underdevelopment don't lie. But it's not an existential threat to our order and freedom, like say the U.S. managerial state and the cabal of financial and nonprofit interests that work diligently to undermine our freedoms and just destroy our culture. But I do hope that the Cuban people figure out a way how to defeat their crappy government and replace it with something better on their own terms. But ultimately, this is for the Cuban people to decide, not the U.S. government or the NGO industrial complex. However, you have a lot of Republicans, frankly, that can't help themselves. And thanks to the interventionist mind virus that they've been infected with over the last three decades, they're just going to continue using Cuba as a way to saber rattle. And it's just another case, frankly, of Republicans suffering from misplaced priorities. My general fear in my years of being in politics is that Republicans have used protests abroad, whether it's Cuba, Iran, Venezuela, China, as a way to avoid talking about serious issues. And in the case of Cuba, man, it's like we hopped on a time machine and as we came out of this time machine, we were instantly hit in the face with boomer tier memes that properly belonged in the Cold War era and not in contemporary politics. This saber rattling logic that a lot of Republican neocons engage in is also extends to countries like Iran, Russia and China, which our ruling class absolutely wants to remake in present-day America's dysfunctional image. And instead of focusing on the clear existential threats, such as mass migration, sexual degeneracy being pushed in educational institutions, anti-white hate, the breakdown in public order that's taking place in the U.S., and our imploding economy, a lot of these Republican hacks just want to emulate the neoliberal interventionists in the Democratic Party by taking a hawkish approach to foreign policy. And this is just more of the same, frankly. I'm of the opinion that this will be a drawn-out struggle as populists try to joust with a lot of the neocon holdovers 
in the Republican Party, as well as a lot of fake populists that I think have caught on to the fact that full-blown neoconservatism is not in style, but they will use populist ornamentation to otherwise conceal a hawkish foreign policy. So you'll see a lot of fake populists. This will be a theme, I believe, in the next decade or so. Again, I'd also just like to point out to some people too, especially for the more novice minds when it comes to geopolitics, they just need to get grounded in reality. It's highly doubtful that a regime change effort in Cuba, even if it's successful, will create some based libertarian slash paleocon slash conservative rule of law state. It'll probably be turned into some appendage of the dysfunctional globalist American empire that rules over us. And who knows, you you can never know with regards to these interventions, the type of blowback they can generate. We could possibly see a legit civil war emerge too if we try to prop up a really unpopular government. That's why I say let's not even take this risk whatsoever. And on another related note, I think this Cuba obsession will just be another excuse to boost mass migration. Sure, Cubans are actually a pretty solid Republican vote. They are the exception to the rule when it comes to Hispanics and their voting patterns. And I attribute this to the shared history from the Cold War experience of communism that saw a lot of Cuban landed elites and professional classes escape the Cuban Revolution and the subsequent consolidation of the Castro regime. From there, a lot of these folks became exiles and later on solid anti-communist activists in southern Florida. That said, there are some caveats to the Cuban vote that we should take into account in contemporary politics. The type of pro-Republican zeal among Cubans has faded with subsequent generations of Cubans who have either become assimilated to America's declining culture or are of a different socioeconomic background. The latter case is instructive because you could see that in the subsequent waves of Cuban migrants of lower socioeconomic stature, namely the Mariel Boatlift Cubans of the 1980s. These folks were not exactly model citizens, to say the least, and I would definitely not want them as my neighbors. And I imagine most Americans would be in agreement with me. Overall, I view mass migration as just another way to add more corporate units to the managerial cog, provide cheap labor to degenerate corporations, and turn historic American areas into facsimiles of the countries that these migrants fled. And some people will say that as a Hispanic, it may be hypocritical for me to push for immigration restriction. But frankly, I don't want to see large swaths of the U.S. turn into little Latin Americas and tropical fiefdoms that my family left a long time ago. No, thanks. I will hard pass on that. And on on a more brutally honest note, I have never been impressed with Cuban Republicans. They're generally 
very squishy on key identity issues such as immigration, the recent January 6th commission, and Second Amendment-related matters. Mario Diaz-Balart and Mariel Elvira Salazar, I am looking at both of you because you two embody this trend. Overall, most of these Cuban reps do very little to stop the cultural left's march towards hegemony. And just look at like the two Cuban reps I mentioned before or the empty suits like Marco Rubio. One can just Google Mario Diaz-Balart or Marco Rubio amnesty along with gun control and you'll find them selling out a ton with regards to legislation and voting behavior. People should definitely be doing their research on their elected officials, but these Cuban reps stand out among the pack. Heck, even you had like a former congresswoman, Elena Rosletnin of Florida's 27th district, who is also a Cuban exile. She was a big time proponent of LGBT legislation, anti-hate crime laws, and anti-discrimination bills. She was the first Republican member of the U.S. Congress, in fact, to become a co-sponsor of the Respect for Marriage Act. And it's, this is all pretty bad stuff, but it just shows why these Cuban reps are not all that. And frankly, I don't want South Florida to continue turning into a Latin-style Hispanic state lit that comes with all of its attendant flaws, such as high crime, rampant wealth inequality, high corruption, and the list goes on. Though I think that shift may have sailed because South Florida is pretty much a Hispanic ghetto at this point. In sum, I think the problems that we are currently facing are just domestic in nature. The biggest threats are not coming from China, Iran, or Russia, or even like puny countries like Cuba. These threats are coming from the managerial regime that lords over us. The right should absolutely be willing to recognize that. If not, we're just repeating the same old vicious cycle where we stare at shiny objects that distract us from the real problems we face. In the next decade, I foresee this being a recurring battle within the GOP as the populists try to reorient our priorities and purge the party of the neocon parasites who fight harder for the rights of foreigners and Americans, to put it bluntly. So we will definitely be keeping an eye on that and yeah, those are just my concluding remarks for the first episode of El Nino Speaks. And thank you so much for tuning in. More El Nino Speaks episodes will be in the pipeline. So keep your eyes peeled on Substack or on my social media accounts on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook for further updates. Take care, everyone. Peace.